Hello and welcome to PM Podcasts, a session that sees us take a regular walk in and around the world of transformation, agile, PMOs and change management. Each commutable-sized podcast includes a short discussion and tips presented by subject matter experts in the industry. Now, today on the PM Podcasts, we're talking digital railways, nerve centres, customer experience and notably a moment in Australian transport history. With that, I'd like to welcome our guests, Tony Ede, Executive Director, Future Delivery Networks at Sydney Trains, and Jeff Howard, Program Director, Rail Operations Centre at Sydney Trains also. Now, last year, Sydney Trains unveiled a piece of transportation history with the launch of the Rail Operations Centre, also known as The Rock, a $276 million next-generation rail operations centre. Strategically, The Rock is a core component of Sydney Trains' move towards becoming a digital railway. The Rock is a state-of-the-art 24-7 facility that sets up Sydney's rail network for the next century in order to support growth in passenger numbers from anticipated population increase. Now, welcome, Tony. Welcome, Jeff. Nice to have you on the show today. Morning, Jeff. Morning. And firstly, congratulations to you, Tony, Jeff, and the whole team at Sydney Trains on this remarkable launch. Now, before we get into the background to the program and some questions, would you mind introducing yourselves and what you both look after at Sydney Trains? Okay, well, as you know, I'm Tony Ede. I've been 40 years with the rail industry in Sydney and travelled the world looking at different railways. But uh, for me, uh, my role today is preparing ourselves for that what that future would look like. I mean, if we just think for one minute for all the listeners that catch a train to and from work every day, you would know how busy it is right now. And not only would you know how busy it is right now, it's growing at a very fast rate. In fact, the last six months, we carried 10 million more people than we did the six months previous. So how do we actually continue to grow? Well, my job is making sure that we set up ourselves um, as the main link between the rail operators, you know, government, transport, and my colleagues and peers in Sydney Trains to ensure that we do all the infrastructure work and we prepare ourselves for that moment in time when we double the numbers we we expecting to carry from today. Wonderful. Thank you, Tony. Jeff? Uh, thank you, Joe. Um, Jeff Howard, um, the program director, as you introduced earlier. Um, my background has been uh, one of managing large, complex uh, projects. Um, I've been doing that now for many, many years. I won't tell you how many years, but uh, long enough to understand um, the pitfalls and issues and risks that uh, go with um, such complex programs. My responsibilities um, under Tony were to get the actual building up and out of the ground, so build the, the, the physical environment, introduce all the technology in, in there, so that technology included existing technology plus some um, enhancements in the technology uh, space and we will talk about that a little bit later and also the transformation effort so that's around the change and training and getting the people onto that control room floor and all of that doing it inside the uh, the budget so just small um, small roles you both have then they do keep us going, uh, so I'm that's sure. the main thing. Now, Tony, I know that the program focused on a number of pillars. Would you like to outline some of these and then describe also what has been delivered to elaborate on what Jeff explained there? Well, look, the fundamental part of Building the Rock was come together in a vision we had 20 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, we our focus on our first pillar was with the customer. 
So anything we did, no matter how we designed it, no matter what we introduced from a technology point of view, or even the design of the control room floor, had to be designed around what was best and the best outcome for the customer. So that was pillar number one. Pillar number two was how do we actually then design the building to get the best outcome? So it was about constructing, finding the best way, looking at world's best practice to, to build up the control room floor and anybody else who supports the operating railway to be in that same precinct, in that same building with us. So that was the second pillar. The third one then was about what technology is available for us to be able to ensure ourselves, now let me rephrase that, to guarantee that we give the right information to the customers uh, right on when it's happening and to be able to get that into the palms of their hands using their smart technology so they can make an informed decision and provide them options on how to move around the network. So that became the catalyst of all we were done. So we've introduced technology to do that. What number am I up to? Three. Three. So the fourth one then was about dynamic timetabling, being able to connect uh, the timetable to provide more automation, to provide more decision making or, or give the train controllers enough decision making to make that happen. And to do that then we had to change the operating model. So everybody who walked in is not just walking off an old control room floor into the rock, we absolutely changed the operating model. So we call that the uh, rock operating model that's known as ROM. And then the fifth one and the final one uh, was more based around preparing the organisation to take on the change by introducing a new incident management tool. And that incident management tool meant that for the first time we would be able to quickly respond and recover from an incident using available technology to us. So those five pillars have now been realised and uh, are in that control room floor and are functioning every single day. Terrific. Wonderful. Now, I understand from our previous conversations that some of the large consultancies advise you to shelve the, the idea. Um, they said that it couldn't be done. Instead, you've delivered it and you've delivered it on budget. Now, can you give a story of how that initial doomed recommendation became the impressive rock that has been launched recently? Well, Joe, if your listeners can see me shake my head right <laughs> now. Um, you know, that is so true to the mark, to the point where I thought I'd made the wrong decision. We had some very large consultancy firms who came in and did a health check for me, predicted something like $70 million over the budget. We hadn't turned sod on site. We'd invested heavily in a lot of uh, technology. The commercials were all wrong. The, you know, the, the way we constructed it in the early stage, even buying the real estate to put the rock onto, all had significant problems. And the problem we had then was is that how do we actually then convince people to continue to invest in the project? $300 million is a lot. That's, yeah. that's two schools, three hospitals, if you want to put it to, to something. Comparison, yeah. Yeah. So I absolutely didn't take on that advice. <laughs> Good. I went a bit rogue. Good. Um, <laughs> but I then called upon, um, you know, really strong project management and program management companies to help me navigate my way through this crazy maze that we were about to go on and PM Partners and I rang Ken and Ken was already doing a job with Incendi Trains and I said mate I'm in trouble I just need a really down and dirty deep dive look in about if I was going to change the dynamics of this rock bring it back to budget how can I do it and uh, that's where the story starts and I didn't listen to the other consultancy firms I took the hard pill made some very 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 tough decisions 
re-engineered the building, uh, made some commercial changes to contracts, let some really good vendors go, which I didn't want to do, but I had to. And I did what was best for the organisation and more importantly, maintained the customer profile and the customer benefits to ensure that they didn't miss out on what we were building. And the rest is history. Like my, I, all, yeah, very proud of the fact that that building stands strong. Absolutely. And very proud of the fact that we're already um, achieving the benefits that we wanted to achieve to the customers. And every day that goes past, no matter what the incident is, you can dead set tell the difference of being inside that rock compared to where they were before. That's right great. story. Great. And we'll delve into some of those details a little bit um, more detail later. Um, now, that's quite a turnaround. So how did you approach it? And what do you think were the critical components that made it a rea- reality and helped you keep it to budget? Well, one of the ways I approach it is to, when I say this very bluntly and very importantly for any of the, the program managers or, or program directors out there, is I had to start again. Mm-hmm. Well, that meant that the existing operating environment that we are operating in from the project director right through to some of the key teams in there, we had to start again. And one of the things that I learned very quickly is our organisation doesn't quite have the skills of program management than what the private sector does. And mm-hmm. what, I, what I needed was a very strong professional firm that could come in and set up the program office. And in fact, uh, help me with a very strong program director to, to navigate through this thing and get it on a steady state. And let me tell you, we met every morning at 6 a.m. and we met three times a day sometimes. They were tough, but we did do that. We took that um, you know, that anger pill and we went through it and it wasn't fun. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell you, you know, Jeffy's uh, came in uh, fresh of breath air with his experience in both technology and the infrastructure space. Ken, who provided a hell of a lot of resources to us mm-hmm. um, with, with the company, that PM Partners, and more and more as we progressed through this journey, and it was a tough journey, we started to get more and more relaxed that we, you know, we are going to deliver this thing. We are going to get there. And there was points in time where I absolutely, I absolutely thought we weren't going to do it. And I absolutely thought I made a dis- mistake to the company, spent, uh, invested $150 million of public money and we were going to get nothing for it. So I wasn't in a good space, but we stuck by our laurels. Mm-hmm. We delivered on the budget. We delivered late, but you know that seventy million dollars was absorbed into the program. And here you are today, telling the story so that other people can learn from this experience yeah. and understand that you know, it's not all a bed of roses. Um, no. There are going to be obstacles along the way, and this is very much to help people understand how they might think about addressing yeah, some of those. So some of the other, if I can just add absolutely, to yeah. Tony's commentary there, some of the other things that we did in terms of the approach to turning it around was. Uh, Tony mentioned, you know, looking at the core building. Um, We also then reviewed the technology stack that was sitting in there. So what was the scope of the program? What were the priorities? So we still had to deliver something to the customer, but we also needed to make sure that that control room floor was going to be able to absolutely be the foundation for any future network uh, activity and, mm-hmm. the, and digital railway that's coming through. So we looked at those components. But some of the other things that we did 
that uh, kind of, they might sound very, very simple, but we brought a level of transparency into the program. So what was happening before was that the program just kind of was running out in isolation rather than really engaged with the business and the executive and key stakeholders. So they were just running um, in parallel and never really aligned. So one of the key things was to create that alignment throughout the organisation about what, what Rock was going to do and how we were going to deliver to their needs. The other thing that we did was, you know, we, we used the risks and issues that were sitting in front of us um, to drive the right sort of outcomes and the decisions that we needed through, within the program. So it might sound simple, but a lot of people avoid risk. They see that as, oh, that's bad. But in fact, I embrace risk, and it's something that Tony embraced risk. We, we love to be transparent about that. And what are we doing about it, and how do we resolve those issues? So um, I changed the perspective of the, the leadership team and the project managers there that risk is something that we can use to our benefit, and we're then able to... Um, get effective responses to what we need as a program to deliver and you now we're talking about the results of those things. Absolutely and that's a wonderful story. Um, so what are some of the highlights of the program from your perspective? Perhaps there are some tangible ones and maybe there are some that are not immediately obvious to the public eye. Yeah look I mean I have a hell of a lot of highlights and just for your listeners I was there 3 30 this morning in the rock and people will don't you know might think well, what would you be doing there at 3 30 in the morning is because we're still working out things with the controllers on the floor mm-hmm. you know the lights are pretty bright off a night time and we were trying to work out a good balance but for me you know i had this vision uh in 1998 to have this rail operation center built for the olympic games to manage the rail transport task for the games and i was pipped at the start by uh, a very senior bureaucrat who used to, who was the CEO for RTA at the time, Les Malinga, who needed the transport management centre that, that's down at Everly, and he won out. I lost out, and that's okay. He turned out to be my boss later on, <laughs> so it was a good thing. Um, but eventually we got there, and, you know, the highlight for me was to be able to, when Gladys came into power, mm-hmm. her comments to us was, which is our premier today, um, I want change. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to put the customer first. I want you guys who've been running trains in Sydney for a very long time to tell me what you need to make that happen. And obviously the plans got dusted, put on the sh- mm-hmm. uh, off the shelf and to Gladys. And, you know, that's a funny story because uh, when I said I need a rail operation centre to consolidate, to better improve incident management, and I forgot about the customer completely. You know, we can recover from the incident very quickly and keep trains on time for you. And she pulled me up and said, What's that mean for the customer? And then the penny dropped and I turned it. But when she said how much, and I didn't have a clue how much it was, and I said, ah, oh, probably 70 million, 80 million bucks. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it cost a hell of a lot more than that. But but to her credit, and I do credit Gladys uh, Berry Jickland for this, uh, she was the one who actually invested time um, and uh, backed us in to build this rail operation centre. And we couldn't let it down, and we wouldn't let it down. So that was my first highlight. Second highlight was convincing a workforce of 10,000 strong that we need this. You know, this was a significant transformation change. Yeah. 
controllers who would actually talk to each other on the phone are now into one centre. Yeah. Them living in a dark, dingy control room type environment to come out into this massive, hundred strong workstation area and then collaborate amongst each other to deliver a single outcome. Having seen that come to life yeah. and having seen them all working together the way they work together is one of the probably the biggest highlights of my career. Knowing that we've built the building and knowing that the people have embraced it the way they have embraced it and all for the better for the customer. So, you know, they're two highlights. The rest of it, there's too many to mention here. Uh, but, you know, if you are doing something like this or you are charged with a program such as this, the best thing you can do is involve the workforce very early in the piece, yep. be upfront and very honest with them and allow them to build it with you. You know, even if it costs a little bit more in the long run, let me tell you, when they own this thing and they embrace it, any obstacle in front of you, they will help you overcome. And pun the pun, it really is a journey. Yeah, and, and that to me is a highlight of, mm-hmm. of, of that, how people is the highlight. And that actually leads me quite nicely into the next question about what your priorities have been. Um, you've talked about really putting the customer absolutely the heart of everything you've done. How have you maintained or amended these priorities in a, such an ever-changing, highly complex and high-profile environment? Well, again, it's our people. I mean, one of the things that quickly come to mind for any good leader is to be out and be visible, mm-hmm. you know, to engage your workforce, uh, consultate as much as you can. The unions do have a role in all of this as well, and they actually helped us in some cases, and they, they praised the good work of Jeff and his team about how they were doing and how they, were, how they kept them informed. Um, but you know, any big transformation change program as big as this, and this is not the big one we're taking on, we're taking on another one just now, we've started a new one. Um, but, but to be honest, um, you know, to get to where you need to be, you know, things have got to be around collaboration, early engagement, uh, keeping them engaged and, and current with that, getting the transformation right, focusing on the end game and not losing sight of it. And I remember having a conversation with Jeff as we started putting people in there. I said, people are starting to feel relaxed to me. This is the last mile. And when I mean by the last mile is is that if you're travelling home in your car and you've got a kilometre to go or the last mile before you get home, you feel relaxed and that's probably the time when you stuff things up, you have an accident and whatever else. I am obsessed with the last mile and making sure that everybody stays focused, the job is not done until it is actually done. And, you know, that last mile is... Is, is the hardest part of any project is getting it to the end state and having money in your pocket at the finish of it. And that's what we did, so that's how we did it. My priorities are slightly uh, different to Tony's as, as the sponsor. Um, as the program director, you know, my priorities are always maintaining the, the budget and ensuring that we're going to come in on tasks. That was a kind of number one thing that Tony talked to me about at the start must deliver this within the existing budget. So that priority never really changed. Um, the, some of the, the, the other priorities were making sure the business came on board into this program. So we wanted to shift it from us owning it to the, the, the business owning this particular program. Uh, and we did that by um, 
bringing them into our um, meetings for them to understand the status of the project. And that was not only from the executive level, but all the way down to the frontline staff. So we had working groups. And as things um, filtered out of those working groups of the frontline staff, sometimes that changed our priorities around what was important or what we thought was important became less important. So Did you hear that feedback directly? Absolutely. Yeah. And so that helped to guide us. It guided us in some of the union consultations and how we were going to work with the staff to, to bring them in and bring them in seamlessly. So there was an ever-evolving um, activity for us. I just uh, used to love you go into these working groups and the union guys will have their arms completely folded, frown on their face, a series of questions that they needed to ask you and they wanted answers for, and sometimes it's the same question. It is those people that have come at the start of the journey who are now our ambassadors. Wow. And they're absolutely out there and you hear them talking about it, they live and breathe it, and they've brought the organisation on the journey with us. So that's just a credit to the way Jeff and the team have handled it. It's also a credit to the entire workforce who um, have seen that this is one of the most important parts. And it's more than bricks and mortar for us. It's, it's, it symbolises on who we are, but it's the launching pad for the future. And, you know, what's in front of us is quite extraordinary. And, uh, you know, the game's not over yet. It won't be until at least 2030 before we actually get a chance to breathe a little bit <laughs> and um, have, you know, Sydney with a very solid, um, you know, transport model. Terrific. I guess when you've got 10,000 odd business owners, effectively, yeah. um, you're all marching in the right direction, then it's, it's a pretty strong force. It is. Now, what level of capability is required to successfully execute a complex change program like this, of this sort of scale? Oh, look, it, it takes all sorts. We've built, you know, in... I have changed out the project organisational structure five times okay. from the time we started to the time we finished and each capability has been different. We've had people that have been design, great at designing and, and pulling programs together right through to collaboration, right through to operational readiness, right through to transformation. So we've broken the whole thing up over time to get us to a uh, position that we need to go to but if you just unpack that for a minute. You know, you've got a workforce that you need to keep going. You've got union consultation. You've got uh, reforms that you have to deliver. You've got to introduce new technology and you have to have that bedded in before you go into the rock. Uh, we have a building to build, to spec. It's got to pass our standards and series of gateways in amongst all of that. So the capability stems well beyond um, what our own Sydney Trains people's capability is. So you need to be able to tap in and work through using professional services across you know, industry to help you deliver what you need. And don't be afraid to do that. It's, yeah. it's okay to, to bring in the people you need. Well, I was very fortunate. I landed with PM Partners and entered into a, a, a commercial arrangement with PM Partners who had the ability to tap into the workforce or yeah. tap into the sectors or private sectors and be able to bring to the table any capability we needed. I love using our own people. I always have. I'm a very big uh, advocate of that. But there was areas in there where we just knew we couldn't do. Yeah. And that's where that is. So capability, if anyone's listening to this, and I'm sure there are, don't be afraid to change the dynamics of your team throughout the life cycle of the program. It is very, very important. Don't think the your project manager of day one will be your project manager of 
the end state. They will change as you need them and be very bold and um, flexible in that space. Yeah, more for the flex. Um, if I can just add a couple of things there, I think in terms of you know being able to successfully execute, you need a great sponsor. Tony has been uh, a fabulous sponsor. Um, as he said earlier, you know we meet at six o'clock every day in the earlier stages. It was intense, but it's much better from from um, a, a program perspective to have an engaged sponsor rather than one that is disconnected. So it, it just starting at that point is is really important. The next one is to ensure that there's that alignment with the executive, so across the affected or impacted areas. So with such magnitude of change that we were looking at, and so many different parts of the organisation coming into this one centre, we had to make sure that they were all aligned with that single goal. Like we've got the customer at the end, how are we delivering the, the building and the change of technology and then for the people, the ultimate control room floor. So one of the things that we did is we coined this phrase and you know it's a bit hackneyed of course, is kind of one team, one approach. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't just out of the program, that's what we also took into the business. So they now use that terminology and have used that as, as kind of their underpinning message for the changes that they've gone through so they they've lifted their head out of that one little space that they're in and they have this bigger view of the customer and what are the decisions that I'm making today that are going to impact that customer's journey and the outcome on their their travel yeah that's a very strong foundation yes and you know with the other thing is is also to make sure that in that um, that change process that you've got the subject matter experts in there that they're championing for you and that they're driving it rather than the program driving it so the business is actually picking up and owning that part of the program essentially you know you've succeeded when the union delegates and the people on the shop floor are more worried about the coffee machine in the kitchen <laughs> than them going to a 76-hour per fortnight, you know, or changing their awards. And I, I often smile, and this morning I was surrounded, you know, by probably about 70 employees this morning as we were playing around with the lights and the joy and, and you know, you can sense that they... They not only just own the building, that it's it's physically working the way we constructed it. It's physically working in the way that we've changed the operating model. And and they're very happy and, and they know that it's changed and when they come to work, they want to be there. And being surrounded by them today and then being happy and we're, we're playing with the lights and we're joking around and we lock it into a point of, you know, where we said we can live with, you know, mm -hmm. collectively. They felt very proud because they put that up as an issue. Yeah. And, you know, we said, let's play with it for a month. If it doesn't work, we'll come back. And because we were true to our word throughout the whole journey of this and no different this morning, they then knew that they're on a winner. They're gonna be there. That building's gonna be there for a hundred years. We're gonna be running trains out of there. You know, my next stage is convincing government to move the transport management center into the rock as well. Grow the place that so becomes a true uh, rail transport, road transport, yeah. management centre. So there's there's a bit in front of that to do that. But, you know, I, I, I'm very proud to just stand there and watch it and I just sort of, you know, think back of where we were and, 
you know, and then I say to myself, what if he didn't go ahead? What if he did listen? Mm-hmm. So these. What would be out there? So if you ever face with those decisions, think long and hard and be prepared to take on those hard call decisions and back yourself when you do it. Don't walk away from it, no matter how tough it gets. That's you great. follow it through. Great advice. And you've mentioned people, um, the people aspect a couple of times. I just want to touch on that a little bit further mm-hmm. and the importance and significance of cultural change um, and how you've gone about that and any recommendations for those in a, in a similar position. Yeah, look, I actually thought it might be a little bit easy, build a control centre, put all the bells and whistles <laughs> in it and say, come in, guys, let's start running the railway from here. But it was far from that. And, you know, we didn't go in with eyes wide closed either. We, we had a plan. We had a vision, uh, we had a new operating model and we knew exactly what we wanted to do. The challenge for us was is how do you bring people on board to, to um, accept what you're trying to deliver. The first stage for us was to actually tell the end story. Yep. So I remember standing in front of uh, about 150 employees from the different classifications that were going into the rock and I didn't talk about the rock. I talked about the challenges of the, the future. I talked about you know, the amount of people we'll carry in in less than five years. I spoke about we've reached capacity on the rail network. I spoke about classifications that would need to change. We need to, we've reached this point in time where Sydney trains has grown up compared to the rest of the world. And we have these challenges that we face in front of us far greater than anything we can possibly imagine. And if we don't start to do things differently, we'll end up in a position where we actually can't move the people of the future. And then I brought in rock and I said that if we tried to run things the way we run things today out the network um, in the rail operation centre and then try and overlay all these new technologies to try and make it work we will physically fail and I brought in uh, examples from London from Germany from New York from Hong Kong where they've all taken this journey over the years and I pointed to a point in time where we've now reached when they started this journey And I sent some people overseas to have a look at it. And I think what we've ended up doing was creating an environment of not about building rock. It wasn't about the rock. Rock is an enabler for the future. It was about the future and how they play, what role they play in that future. And I think that sort of got the the journey started. And then the rest of it was, you know, round tables, banging tables, or they were banging tables, uh, about how do we actually set ourselves up to get to that operating model. And to the success of everybody, including some of my peers and colleagues who did a lot of the negotiations, we got there in the finish. Um, you know, and I can't help but look back and think that <laughs> yeah, it would have been hundreds of workshops, several late nights, changes to EBAs, mm-hmm. uh, you know, awards and conditions. Um, and I go back to the fact that they were more worried about the coffee machine and the chairs <laughs> that were sitting in the kitchen than, than all the other stuff. And that's because they owned it with us on the journey and they helped sell the product and I think that's any success for anybody trying to do that. So yeah, there that's you have it. great advice. Um, we're, uh, we also talked earlier on about engaging the people. So we did many, many workshops. I think, Tony, probably over 200 yeah, workshops. Hundreds, this was just to design the, the workstations alone. Wow. So. Um, we we looked at the reflection off screens that you know how tactile the the desktop was how big did it need to be um, what were the ergonomics that were going to be important and so it wasn't a project decision these were the decisions within the organization or the people that were going to sit there and actually do the work 
You know, these people sit behind these these desks for 8, 10, 12 hours a day and they have to be in an environment that we, we're optimising, you know, their thinking and decision-making. So in engaging them early, that helped us with this cultural change. Yeah. So all of a sudden they were going, oh, right, there's, that was my idea. That was there. It's, I can see it there. That screen's like that or the desk is designed that way because that was the input I gave. And so we started to see this very positive story start to weave its way out through the, out through the organisation. And, and, you know, to Tony's credit, you know, we, we, it got turned around. So it went from this never-going-to-happen state to bring it on because we're really going to enjoy what, what this environment's going to um, deliver for us. And you credit the, you credit them for that, you know. We, I'd say, look, Dave, who runs Icon, you know, came up with this brilliant idea that's actually made so much difference to the way we were doing things. And you'd look at you and you think, wow, they actually credit it. You know, we did do that. And the more and more you start to do it, and everybody wants to be involved. And I'm not suggesting, I'm not trying to paint a, a perfect picture. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to paint a journey that we went, we embarked on that actually got us to the end state uh, with a whole lot of turmoil, mm-hmm. good, bad and ugly along the, on the way. But by the time we got out of that and, and started to rise and we can actually see the building come to fruition and we're doing tabletop exercises on the control room floor, people then believed. They but believed that this thing was coming and when the fact that they believed this was coming and the penny had dropped with them, mm-hmm. It was just game on. And the momentum. Yeah, yeah I've gone from we're never going to do this to say, when can we get in? When can we start? When can we start operating? I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. We've got all this stuff to do. Help us, help us, you know. That's a fantastic it's story. Really inspirational for yeah. our, our listeners, I'm sure. Um, now, collaboration between many parties has been critical to the program. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Well, collaboration is a very important part. When I took on this project, I remember Howard Collins, our chief executive, had said, this project was run by a customer service. I need you to set us up for the future. Can you take on the rock? And that was November or October 2015. And the first thing I did was this um, health check. And, the, and that's where they told me I should shut the project down. And one of, the re- one of the things in the health check said that there is zero collaboration across, um, not just in Sydney trains or its stakeholders, but in government, in transport. There's no visibility about how the project is performing, where it's up to, uh, what sort of expenditure has already gone through the books, uh, where where all the design work was going. So, so we had to then embark on a brand new program that absolutely took it from where it was to where it is. And getting people involved early and, and getting the management team, the executive team, getting government, treasury, all involved to understand what was in front of us and what we had to do to deliver it came down to the collaboration yeah came down to us being able to communicate what we were expecting having them make decisions with us and the uh, we've ran 54 stecos since i've taken this on that's one a month Mm -hmm. 54 months and not one of them has gone seamlessly pleasant (laughs) (laughs) i can share that right so i've got my peers transport senior executives um, and we would go through a series of the stickers for decision making, financials, for noting and whatever else. And not once have we gone through the sticker without several stakeholders 
buying into different parts and wanting more and unpacking more and us being able to contain and control the journey with them along the way. I have one more Stico to go, <laughs> and that is next month. <laughs> and in, when, in that Stico, I am truly not expecting it to be like smooth as, as anything, but I do want to close out that last Stico with a very important point. We started with the business case that had a BCR of about 2.3, uh, which is, gives you good money. Um, we you know, went through a journey, we shut something down, the BCR went to a 1.5. And then through the journey that we continued and the way we kept driving this thing and the changes that we made along the way and the decisions we've made, finished the project at 2.1. Wow, okay. Right up there, so right. you can see all that through the collaboration, all that through the hard work, all that through yeah. the investment, the time, the energy, the will to get this job done by myself and our project team, and I include PM Partners mm-hmm. as my delivery partner in this, uh, who is side by side with us all the way. It was all the sum of all of that that yeah. got us to that finish line, and we end up with a BCR of 2.1. Yeah, that's a terrific you know, outcome. It's bang on. Oh, to be a fly in the wall on that steerco. Yeah, so you would have had a lot of fun. But I always leave the meeting in a bad mood and I always finish the day thinking, breathe. Well, there's, uh, there's an XD coming one month. There's always that coffee machine, which I hear is fantastic. It is fantastic. <laughs> Jeff, anything to add there? I think the collaboration has been tremendous, right? I, I Without that level, you... Um, are never going to achieve the, the outcomes that we, we, we got to. Um, the amount of collaboration or the extent of that for this program was um, second to none on any other that I've done. The number of parties, the number of people that um, needed to be involved or informed, wanted to um, have some level of information around what was going on and then when we gave that information then they would usually ask more and more questions Um, and then you know Tony mentioned earlier on they got this level of comfort so the 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 steer co we kind of changed some of the the activities in there and that brought around a, a more positive response although you know they were they were robust conversations <laughs> in there um, however that that level of collaboration helped guide what we were doing and ensuring that we got to the outcome for the customer at the end mm. um, I, I, I don't think there's really any more to add around mm-hmm. you know that that collaboration space it worked well the business got engaged um, you know, Tony led strongly with that and was a very big advocate to ensure that there was nothing, um, no stone or, or area left unturned as we moved through the, the delivery journey. And even though it was difficult, it was necessary. It, mm-hmm. was, it was a necessary, difficult scenario that we had to run. And at the back of all of that, and I look back and think about my peers who put us through hell and back, um, you know, with the the good grace of you know their experience and and our uh, delivery partners that we had, we got there. Yeah. You know, so it's it's okay to you, you don't get anything that's hard or anything that you want to deliver. Nothing comes easy, and yeah. this was certainly one of the hardest, most complicated um, 
projects I've ever been involved in. I've been through a hell of a lot in, the, in my 40 years, but this one was a very big one for us, and, and, it, and it worked. The, the change was tangible in that you can see we, it. Yeah, we had parts of the business that were not willing to help, didn't want to engage, were just, no, you guys work it out to as we worked through the, the journey and started to collaborate a lot more, they started to buy in and actually give us resource and help us in areas where previously they had resisted. Yeah, so you know, it, it, does, it does help. That level of engagement and making sure it, it starts at the top and continues right down to the front line really changed um, our ability to deliver the project. And that included uh, a hiatus of around nine months where the project was not able to engage with the business because of the, the enterprise uh, agreement that was being negotiated at, at that time. So not only did we have to cope with you know, complex building, technology things, but that, that we were then removed from engagement with the business. So we effectively set a path for how we're going to keep the program going, where's the value that we can extract during that time, and um, check at the end of that period with the business. So we set ourselves up still to continue to a successful endpoint, even though we weren't able to engage, and still bring it in on budget, because that pushed our, our, our schedule out even further. It's incredible. I can only imagine the, what the listeners are, are getting from this in terms of some experience and advice and counsel, and what a case study to, to take into future transformations. It certainly is, and I've, I've been around the world now a couple of times, um, most recently in Berlin for the um, for the Intertrams convention, mm-hmm. and I was presenting to some of the world leaders on um, on our operating model in Sydney, and I spent some time talking about the journey of Rock, and um, a lot of them did at the finish of the presentation clearly point out to me that you must have had a strong government. You must have had people who want to invest that sort of money into delivering what you've just delivered, knowing full well that it was a broken project mm-hmm. when um, when you took it over and taken it to one of the most significant transformation yeah. programs that we've run in our organisation for its 163-year career. Um, you know, and to have it working and have it being embraced by the workforce, yeah, and being there for the next hundred years to run. Sydney's transport task is just just something to be very proud of. Not just for me, the people who built it, um, and the organisation that now has embraced it and are using it every single day to move millions of people. It's a good story. It's a great story. Thank it's you, great Tony. Story. Now, just moving into some final questions here. Behind every great moment in history, there are always many stories. I'm sure there's many stories you can't share, but any are there any behind-the-scenes moments that challenge delivery of the rock, as well as some of the biggest lessons that you've learnt? Probably um, a very valuable question for anybody listening. Well, I'm going to let Jeff go first because <laughs> I, I do have quite a few of them, and um, that, are, that you know, but some of them I will not share. But <laughs> but by and large. Um, yeah, so you go first, mate. Yeah, sure. um, I think um, one of the um, biggest moments was taking that time at the start of the, um, the, the program where um, I joined with Tony was 
how were we going to extract the value from the money that had been spent to then deliver as much as we possibly could um, uh, to achieve the, the net results. And Tony talked about the BCR earlier. And I think that as we, we, we broke that down, the, there were some components, especially in the technology area, that we needed to drop because that, they were cost prohibitive. They weren't necessarily going to um, be delivered on the budget that had been set. And we could find alternatives. So the, the story there is that we needed to uh, take away some technology that the business thought that we're going to get that would benefit them, but still have them believe that we could deliver the final outcome. And uh, a lot of people said, no, this isn't going to work. You can't possibly extract that amount of scope out of here to deliver to the outcome. Um, but uh, working with Tony, we managed to be able to define what that would look like and then deliver to that reset plan. Yep. You know, I, I, I joke about it now, but, you know, I used to say all the time, the rock keeps on giving. <laughs> you know, and there was every single journey along the way, we would always find some sort of problem. And, you know, it's about thinking through the problem, putting it through a risk profile and whatever else. But, you know, if I just call out just a couple off the top of my head, you know, we had, when we brought the land, we brought the land on a floodplain. So, so that was no use to anybody. So we didn't have to buy another piece of land to move the rock into its final alignment. You know, we found petrol tanks in there. We had contaminated soil. We had, you know, um, contracts and commercial problems. We had a very uh, strange neighbour called the New South Wales Fire Brigade, which we entered into a 30-year deal with them to build them a fire station, but they wanted us to pay for everything. So. You know, there are several different stories that um, make up the elements of the final product. And, and, you know, I have to say that even right now, dealing with issues to do with lighting, dealing with issues to do with the high voltage of the building, and even through life support, you know, maintenance cycles that, you know, you need to shut down the power to mm. to yeah. manage an air conditioner and how we deal with that. And, and you, you know, at one point, we will reach that point where... You know, everybody's up and running, there's no more issues and we're just going through a normal maintenance regime of the building and we're so close to that that, you know, for me, uh, even though there's stories I won't share, most of them are about um, that strong resilience as they show up, as you start to deal with each one of these problems every day and don't treat the problem as another problem and you sort of swing back and think, oh, Jesus, what am I going to do now? Embrace the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, bring it in, get people around you, get the all the information you need to make a decision, make the call, get on with it, and then drive that call to a fruition. And Jeff will tell you on a thousand times over this program, you know, I've been very firm and thorough in my approach in making sure that not only did the timeline, we followed the timeline or we stayed to the baseline numbers or we stayed to the budget, but we also worked collectively um, to make sure that all those problems that came in front of us, we weren't scared of, we weren't going to push to the side, we were going to find um, outcomes for them and we were going to be solution-led. And that's exactly what we did. 
yeah. each and every time. So there's some of the stories that fill the back end of the rail operation centre. I think some of the other great things were um, the underbore, Tony. Oh, yeah, so we so we needed to bring power from one oh, of the supplies in, into the into the building. We start um, boring down and we ended up in this pile of sludge about 14 metres under the ground. So the whole thing gets aborted. We have to then try other things. It's, you know, adding cost and so on all the way. I talked about the EBA. That put a, a really big hole in uh, what we were doing. But being flexible is really important. So as Tony said, don't just kind of sit there and go right we're on this path right what do we change how do we how do we extract the best value out of it um and uh, there was one other point <laughs> which has just eluded me um uh, i'll come back to it in, but in while, a while you're thinking of that uh, one funny story was is that we had a complaint when we do a night works and it was about someone saying to to us in the complaint that we was doing some soaring and they were staying up at night and the project manager that was responsible for that said, don't worry, Tony, it's, it's all good, you know, that just one person complains all the time. So I went and knocked on the door of the person who complained, and I'm glad I did, because this person, um, when I opened the door, let's just call him John, because I don't think he wants to be known here. So when I introduced myself and told him who I was, he said, well, that's strange, what are you doing here? And I said, I want to hear your complaint, because my project manager said that, you know, it's not as bad as you make out. And he said, well, come with me. He opened up his phone and he played something that was the most horrifying noise I've ever heard in my life that was so loud that I'm not, don't know why anybody else hasn't complained. And I said, can I have that please? And I took that to our people and I played it and they've gone, that's not what our people told us on the ground. It was so horrific, the sound, that we had to re-engineer everything to get that right. I offered everybody in those apartments whenever we had that heavy duty nighttime work free accommodation mm -hmm. in a hotel somewhere mm -hmm. nearby. Especially if they had kids and they yeah. sleep in patterns or people were on night shift and here we are banging away all night and day it was horrific for the for the neighborhood. What gave me a lot of joy was is that no one actually took up that offer, which I would have paid for anyway, but I opened the doors up for all the community to come in and said, look, we've been making noise, we've been building this place for two this years. This is what it's all about. Come and have a look what we've done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we tell the story about the rock and the way we've designed it. We take them to the control room floor and, you know, they've gone, wow, this is just impressive. And, you know, to me, that's uh, one of the stories that, you know, take it. I've still kept that sound and I play it every time we, um, I go and present about the rock. And I'll play you it deliberately. You may, can maybe open with that. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and, and uh, John, um, you know, said to me later at the finish of all this, at the actual uh, open day, said, you know, I'm glad you dropped in that day. It made a world of a difference to the body corporate, the people around there. And I'm glad you opened the doors for us to see because we knew this was a railway building, but we had absolutely no idea that you were running 80% of New South Wales rail on our doorstep on our doorstep that goes back to your points around um, collaboration and early engagement doesn't it yes it does and so my last point was around the wow board oh, I'm, glad you, yes. I'm so glad you Bloody raised wow that so, one of my so originally in the in the budget there was a very very small amount yeah. that was committed to that and tony just said jeff that is not happening we are <laughs> not putting in that 
kind of technology, <laughs> you have to go and find something, find some money, work out how you're going to give me this board. And so we made some changes um, and we came up with a budget. Tony said, I'll take that. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, we put it through the Steerco, and uh, now we have one of the best-in-class, state-of-the-art operational displays that is around 32 metres by 3.5 metres high. It runs basically the full length of the building. Um, it can take today more than 40 different displays that can be just dynamically changed and it gives the operators just such great situational awareness. So you can put the weather up there, we can put security cameras up there, we can put what the network's doing, key performance indicators, so everyone gets to understand what's going on the network. And that was a real wow moment for us. I'm so glad that you found a name for it in the end. I think when we first spoke, it was the overview display system, yeah. Yeah. which is not so catchy. <laughs> no, no. The wow board is yeah, its official well, every, name. Everybody who comes in, they go, wow. So <laughs> that's, that's why we call it the wow board. And, you know, Jeff's right. This thing is a, a, a good piece of kit. It's better than the one in NASA. Wow. It's Australia's biggest TV because there's no lines or anything. It's just one big... Um, cloned piece of TV that sits up there. Footy was great the other night between <laughs> Liverpool and Manchester City, <laughs> I have to say. Hopefully all the trains are still <laughs> running on time. Uh, we can put it in, we can put as many things as you like up there, but I think I think the, the short takeaway of that wow board is, is that there was a budget, it wasn't the best. Our rules say you must always take the cheapest, mm -hmm. but the cheapest doesn't necessarily mean it's the right tool. This thing was going to pay for itself very quickly because it's maintenance regime and it's maintenance. Yeah. Uh, capability was far cheaper in the long run so spending and I don't mind saying it we had a budget of half a million dollars for the wow board this budget uh, the wow board itself cost six million so it was very yeah. dear compared to yeah. it's it's uh it's the operating budget that we had and I was prepared to sacrifice other things to get that yeah. because if you're building something for a hundred years and you need that wow board to be able to adapt into the future and be able to be changed up with very little maintenance required for it it was an investment that I thought would be very good for Absolutely. for us for the, for the long haul. And that's what we did. That's terrific. Now, just one final question, dare I ask. The rock has been delivered. Where are you currently at with the program? And dare I ask, what's next? Right, well, there's two things for mine, is, is that we've got 80% of the floor now completely populated. So there's about uh, 80 people out of 100 working on the floor. Mm -hmm. Uh, the signalers which run the manipulate the signaling system, they will join us uh, next month and the month after. So by August, we should be completely, completely populated, yeah. um, along with our train crew colleagues. Uh, the project is in its transition phase right now. As I mentioned earlier on, you've got different project methodologies that you apply when you get to the end. We've got to the end, and I'm about to hand over a golden key that I've made yeah. up to my peer, uh, George, who is the... Uh, Executive Director of Operations, it's his turn now to take over the baton um, and you know bring the project home, which is all about setting up the contracts for through life support, mm -hmm. uh, you know testing our business continuity plans, getting ourselves ready to um, how do I dare say it rock for uh, stage two, yeah. which we start looking at embracing more technology and whatever yeah. else. You reference 2030 as a... Yeah, well, see, for mine, I've now built a new transformation office because um, I did talk about how many people we carry today, 1.3 million people in five years, that's 2.3. 
we don't have the track capacity to move that sort of people. Mm -hmm. We even if I had all the trains, we won't be able to move them. So the next big thing for me is is that how do we increase our capacity by changing out the signalling system, introducing more IA uh, or AI, I should say, and uh, full autonomy on the on the railway um, for us to be able to have trains follow each other about 50 metres apart compared to today being one kilometre apart. So a huge challenge, massive transformation, probably around an $18 billion project. Uh, It's up and running, it's on its way. Um, We've we've engaged with industry, we've we've, um, already committed and locked in the uh, system integrator for Mm -hmm. the program who have now joined up and set up camp. We're truly on our way for one hell of a transformation change program uh, far greater than what the rock would deliver but we couldn't do that without the rock yeah so the rock was the enabler for that big one so that's what's on the books for the next uh, few years and for me i'm just looking for the next uh, complex <laughs> program that needs some help <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well it's been absolutely great to hear in both of your own words the story behind the rock for so many of us who obviously use public transport it's just terrific to hear a bit more of a warts and all story so that concludes the pm podcast for today during which we explored a moment in australian transportation history so thank you both some yeah great inspiration amazing tips and counsel around collaboration transparency prioritization flexibility early engagement and a focus on the end game there's so many lessons to be learned in this so thank you both for coming in to talk about this can't be done transformation i'm glad to see it could be done and what has been done So do feel free to send your questions, topics and speakers for the future PM podcast to info at pm-partners.com.au. Bye for now.